0: John, you're very welcome to the show. John, I'd like to start by asking you just to to share with us a little bit about your background before you got into your your existing sales business. Where were you working? What were you doing?
1: So I'm I'm like most, uh, Paul, where we got into sales by accident. So I grew up in the Bronx, New York, uh, part of New York City, back when New York City wasn't so quite cosmopolitan. It was a little bit more gritty and, and rougher. And uh, I went away to college, uh, university, and I got a, uh, a degree in English, studying English literature, which didn't qualify me for much. And so when I graduated, I was essentially unemployable, uh, but I loved learning. And so I got a job selling encyclopedias, and some of the uh, younger folks don't even know what that is. They know what Wikipedia is, but this was a whole set of books uh, that sold for uh, the Encyclopedia Americana. And I did that for two years. And that was in-home selling in the five different boroughs of New York City. And it was a baptism by fire. And my dad uh, knew someone who worked at IBM. And IBM back then, this is in 1984 now, 85. IBM was like Google and Apple combined. IBM was it. And he got me an interview at IBM, and and I was excited. And and uh, they gave me a job offer, and I said, great. And they said, would you want to work in the mail room, or you want to be a security guard? And I said, I'm here for the sales job. And they said, well, we don't hire people quite like you. Do you want to be a security guard, or do you want to work in the mail room? We'll get you in the sales if you behave yourself. And I said, what's the difference? They said, well, as a security guard. Uh, you work shift, second shift, and third shift, and we give you a premium, you know, shift premium. You'll work every holiday, and you'll get double time on a holiday. We give you two polyester suits for you to wear. Uh, I said, I'll take security, and I worked for two years at IBM's uh, marketing headquarters at in Westchester Avenue in White Plains, New York, as a security guard, and then uh, and then got promoted or transferred to uh uh, to become an IBM official marketing representative and spent uh, 10 years in sales and sales leadership and sales training and any number of jobs uh, until I started uh, my Sandler business in 1994. So wild, but never
0: expected to be in the sales. So you started out as a basically a bouncer. <laughs> yeah. a corporate bouncer. <laughs> corporate. All <laughs> five foot <laughs> seven of me, yeah. How did you make that transition though? How did you get noticed? How did you convince people How did the security guard convince people at IBM to let you into marketing?
1: Well, I was clear early on. So one of the things, as you know, Paul, uh, we talk about uh, 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 upfront contracts and setting expectations. I was clear early on that I would take this as a stepping stone. And the people hired me were were open to that. Uh, I also acted as if, meaning... I did a lot of studying on all of our products and any kind of sales skills. I could possibly, I, I, I acted as if I had that job and began studying the industry, began studying our technology software and hardware, began studying things like sales, so that I would be prepared. And it, and, and it was noticed pretty quickly. I mean, they, IBM stayed true to its word and promoted me when they said they would promote me because I think they saw someone who was a continuous learner, who was eager, who was ambitious, who was motivated, who was driven, who wanted to succeed. And and my first year, Paul, there's a there's, the IBM magazine is called Think Magazine. It, at the time, it went out to 400,000 employees. It was an institution. And my first year in sales, I made what's called the golden circle, which is like the top 1% or 2% of salespeople. And they have a centerfold spread uh, saying how a security guard... It went f- how I went from being a security guard to the golden circle in one year, which was kind of cool.
0: So Th- That is really cool. That's it fascinating. Cool. Yeah. And then tell me about the transition from marketing to sales. What did you find? I don't know, why, first of all, you, you were successful obviously at marketing. Why sales? What was it that attracted you? Well,
1: yeah, in right. fact, I was always in sales, I was never in marketing. IBM called their salespeople marketing representatives. But I was an absolute salesperson from minute one, a trainee, and God bless IBM, because IBM back then spent $250,000 per new salesperson to train them. They would send you to school for a year, you'd go down to Dallas, Texas, or Atlanta, Georgia, uh, and then back at your branch office five, six, seven times, no quota at all. They simply trained you for one full year, because back then, uh, the average employee lasted 30 years. There was no turnover. IBM until 1987 had never laid off one employee in its entire career. So it was a great investment. And I owe IBM a lot for investing a year's worth of training in me before unleashing me on uh, on a territory. So
0: so I was in sales from day one. Well, that's interesting because that's an incredible amount of training to get. Um, you don't see that. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, I certainly those Not even at IBM. Yeah. yeah. And, and, but you said they do it because, A, they're investing you. It's a, it's a lifetime game as far as they were concerned back then. Is that a little bit chicken and egg? They invested in people so they stayed? Or is it a case now that people don't invest because people leave? Or is it that people leave because...
1: You know, I think it's the latter. I think, I think the world dynamics have changed, and, and the social contract was broken. The social contract was we've never laid anybody off in our in our in our 75 year history. And then between eight, 1987 and nineteen ninety-three, they laid off two hundred thousand people or half of the company, and that social contract is broken. Life moves a little quicker. So I think it's a little bit of a of a chicken and egg in, in that nowadays IBM doesn't invest that kind of money because the odds of you staying in that same position for 30 years are significantly is significantly lower. So I've got to take that into account. I think back then IBM was growing so steadily that you could become a millionaire just by investing in the IBM stock repurchase program. And so that was the key. I know when I left IBM and people would ask my mother, What's your son John? I left IBM to do this, Sandler training. And people would say, What's your son John doing for a living? He was a bright boy. And mom would say, Well, some selling thing now, but he used to work for IBM, right? (laughs) Because that's what my parents' generation, that was the be all end all to be the corporate man to be the corporate person. But it was a great it was a great organization.
0: Yeah. I had that too, only it wasn't about IBM. It was my son used to work in the public service. (laughs) And that was the job to have because job security just when I was young just was not a thing. That's right. It was all about security. (laughs) Um I, I had a question for you I wanted to ask was about yes, 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 I know what it was. Is how do you then so you were a centerfold Model after yeah. one year as top rep in IBM, or one well, of top the top rep in IBM, but yes, yeah, well, so certainly, top, yeah, you're in the top percentile, yeah. Um, you would think then that this guy knows everything, oh, <laughs> well, yeah, I want to, I want to know about that, I want to know about that journey in terms of what you learned after that. So now, because it's very easy to go right. I'm, I'm the king of everything I survey. I'm, I'm in the center of this magazine. All the eyes are on me. T- talk to me what came after that. What was that journey like? What did you learn? What were the mistakes?
1: Sure. I, I laugh because I remember uh, uh, being a sponge. I mean, I've always been a learner, and it's probably one of the reasons why I've ended up in, in, in our business, Paul, where we're teaching and continuously learning. And I remember talking to Dave Lebow, who was one of the most successful IBM reps at the time. And I I did a joint sales call with him at First National Bank of Erie, Pennsylvania, on a guy by the name of Larry Klima, who was the the president at the time. And I remember sitting there, and Larry said something as a prospect that I had no idea how to handle. And Dave did this smoothest thing in the world. It was poetically beautiful how he handled it. At the end, I said, Dave, that was incredible. When he said X and you said Y, Dave then said, I never said that. I said, I was sitting right there. When you said, he said, "I, I... I, I never said that. Not only did I not say that, I don't remember. I, not only did, did I not remember saying that, I would never say something like that. I said I was right. And he had non-transferable skills, right? I mean, he he was intuitively and in good, but he couldn't teach it or train it, you know. And, and so, so that's where in my mind I said, how do I find repeatable skills, right? How do I begin to think about... Um, really finding and, and i didn't find the sandwich system till years later but it planted the seed as to how do you really get repeatable success and not merely rely on intuitive now i love intuition but i wanted a, a, a higher rate of
0: more repeatable success so how did you go about that because there will be a lot of 20 somethings watching this or listening to this who are in that same boat who, who look to somebody else and go i want what they have they can't, you know, they don't have that self-awareness that can, or that communication ability to, to, to train. Or maybe, maybe just the time and patience. Sure. Um, how do you go about getting that? How do you break it down? What was the IBM experience like? Because they have then now and as then great sales training. Yes.
1: Yeah. And and I and I think this is not a phrase I used then, but it it really is about being humble, hungry, and smart right and and hungry hungry is is the ability to always want to learn and have that ambition to get better and smart i think really deals with the way you interact with people and and humble is is the willingness to learn and so so i think as we speak to the 20 somethings and, th- and i've got, a, I've got a, i think i've got four 20 somethings as my kids <laughs> so uh, as I, as i speak to that world um don't discount. Uh, don't judge the book completely by its cover. Um, go for the lesson. And, and so, so I, you and I, Paul, go down to our Sandler uh, uh, workshops uh, uh, multiple times a year, and there could be somebody who is one year in the business. Now, I'm 24 years in the business, and you're a boatload of years in the business, and I could take a tremendous amount out of that one talk about someone one year in the business. Now, does that mean they're more successful than I am? Probably not. Maybe, but there's so many places to learn. I always think about coaches, as it relates to their team. They don't necessarily have more talent than the people on the floor. If they did, they would be there. But those great coaches in the United States—you'd hear about John Wooden and Vince Lombardi. Uh, you know, the the uh, you know these are the names you hear about legendary coaches. They weren't better players, but they could break down things. They can trans. They can translate a, a Lesson. So I'm am a big fan of sales call debriefing, and and going through putting your ego aside, and, and and wondering what could I have done better or differently. And then once I figure that out, either by getting help, Paul, from you or someone like you, or just thinking through it, I then ask my question myself: the question is, it too late? Once I begin to think what I could have done differently or better, I ask, is it too late? And you know what, Paul? In about ninety percent of the cases, it's not too late. And then I've got the ability to sort of readjust my strategy and move forward. So, so as an example, I'm a, I'm a big reader. We've talked about being a learner. I think I'm much more open-minded and much more eager to learn than I was at 24. And, and I've told my kids growing up, listen, if you can get comfortable speaking in public and you can be an avid reader and a learner, you have outpaced 98% of the world simply by being able to speak in public and being an ongoing avid continuous learner I think you're outpacing most of the world. Uh, And so my view is, is my version of hell would be to feel as if I've got no room to improve. It's, Paul, you and I do employee assessments, sales assessments on people. And there are some people who take that personally and go, well, how can I possibly be this successful if I had all these weaknesses? I say, you should thank God these are your weaknesses, because if not, this is as good as you're going to get. This doesn't Any of your weaknesses don't invalidate your past success. And they certainly don't invalidate your I, right? What we call your your sort of self-esteem. They're all opportunities for improvement as long as you can learn to be vulnerable on the, tough on the inside, gutsy and gritty and disciplined on the inside and vulnerable on the outside. I think the opposite is is short-sightedness. It's when you've got to act almost like a bully. You're very vulnerable inside. So you put this invulnerable exterior outside, and you 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 have the pretender effect, the imposter imposter effect, because someone's gonna find you out. I would rather be tough on the inside and vulnerable on the outside.
0: Speaking of vulnerability, then could you share with me your own personal journey where you've had to address those weaknesses in you that you that you said? these opportunities for growth, as you called it, sure. to kind of say, okay, I've identified this and I really need to change because that's hard for people to do, both to acknowledge it and then to stick with it.
1: Yeah, so so I, I am uh, one of two children, the younger, and, and but I was really raised in a home to, uh, I had need for approval. Our version, what we talk about, Paul, a need for approval is this inner need to be liked, an inner need to be loved, um, that, outweighed, that outweighed a lot of other positive selling factors. So I was not great at asking hard questions. I was not great at prospecting. I was not great at closing um, because to me, those were areas of conflict that I wanted to avoid conflict. And 24 years later, working at it, if I was a scale of zero to 10, if I was a two back then, maybe I'm an eight now, but I'm, not, I'm, I'm certainly not done. And so when I look at overcoming, in my first six months in this business, every single day I, I, I threw up, every single day for six months, because I was scared to death. As, scared to death. Now, how do you overcome that? To me, I think it was, it was a commitment level of, I, I can't say I was the greatest goal setter. Uh, I can't say I was the most driven, although I am driven. I, I can't say I was the most driven. I certainly wasn't the most visionary but I was, I was very committed. I, I had made a decision that I didn't want to go back to corporate America. I had moved my family. Uh, I had two kids at the time. I've got four now, they were three and one. My wife wasn't working, she was, she was, she was taking care of the kids and, and I didn't want to fail. And so I made the commitment that, and this is a sailor rule that they told me, and I believed in, is I couldn't let the way I feel control the way I act. Uh, instead, I had to let the way I act control the way I feel. And that one mental decision, that one mental buy-in that said, I'm going to live and die by that mindset. And I'm going to continually to work out of my comfort zone by observing, are my beliefs leading me to the right place? If they're not, I'm going to leave my beliefs behind and act as if, or take the prescriptive action others share with me to do it regardless as to how I feel. That was the single biggest point in my life,
0: I I love it. When it comes though to maybe developing some of the coping mechanisms for need for approval, because I I don't know how you feel, but I would certainly feel that if that's within you, it never disappears. Yeah. I think you just learn how to deal with it and figure out whose approval do I need and whose approval do I not need. And I was just wondering, consciously, what were some of the things that you developed to help you cope with that?
1: Yeah, love the question. Have never been asked that, and uh, and so so listening to David Sandler on cassette tapes back in 1994, you know David Sandler uh, uh, many times would paint things in black and white so that you would take a shade of gray. But his black and white would be something like, uh, Paul, at the end of this meeting, you give me you can give me a no, and I cry in your lobby, right? You can give me a yes, and we can get started, shake hands, and do business, uh, or you can give me a think it over. Uh, do me a favor. Don't give me a think it over, but I'll take a no, right? Now that's pretty hardcore for me, mm. right? I mean, to me that's wrought with conflict, and and I, I twenty four years later, I still get chills thinking about that, right? Yeah. So what it forced me to do was really leverage some of my strengths. And so, as an example, if someone said to me today, "John, can I think it over?" Uh, I could have, I could say, um, "Paul, you and I had this conversation." If you're not interested just say no but let's not do think it over and again for some personalities that will fit because you've got to change your style for personality but my coping mechanism would be able to say hey Paul I appreciate you taking the time with me today um, do you need anything else for me right anything else from me right now no I'm good John um, how much time you thinking like two weeks All right, I'll give you a call maybe mid-October if that works for you sure uh, and then I learned to really, this was Sandler, but I really learned to take my strengths of, of softening. And I would say, Paul, can I ask you a hard question? And and hopefully you don't take it the wrong way. Sure. And I'm not saying this is you. This is probably more me. I'm probably overthinking it. So if I'm off base, forgive me. Um, but I know in my, in my experience, when I've sat with someone for a second meeting, we've invested a couple hours together we talked about what moving forward could look like. We certainly talked about that no was okay. And the meeting sort of ends with, why don't you give me a couple of weeks to think this over? And Paul, I'm probably off base here, so don't misunderstand. But usually what it means is I've missed the mark at some level, Paul, and maybe in your mind, you've already decided not to move forward, but you don't know how to tell me that. And, and I guess I'm just wondering if that might be happening here. So I took Sandler's version of hammer, <laughs> Yeah. and try to leverage my strength to be a people person nurturer. And I had to set traps. And the trap for me was, can I ask you a hard question? And hopefully then come out the wrong way. Because once I say that, I've got to ask the question. So for me, my coping mechanism was to think through what are my transitions? And how do I soften up some of the how do how do how do I become what in the United States is a football goalpost? Which is which is a spine of steel, but wrapped in four inches of human relation skills foam. I don't want to be steel and hurt people. I think people buy from people they like and trust. I don't want to be a pushover and all foam. So how do I go ahead and match that? And for me, intuitively, even back in my IBM days, I was good at the foam and the people skills, which is why people get into sales. Hey, get into sales, Paul. You're good with people. I had to really work on on the on the steel part of it, or being appropriately tougher. One of the things Sandler said is is what if you're financially the, you know, think like you're financially independent and you don't need the business. And I've changed that in my head. I said, what would I actually say if I was financially independent, didn't need the business, but really wanted it because I believed I could help and I was not an arrogant SOB, then what would I say? And and essentially that's the core, I think, of often what we're teaching. Sandler mm. was, what would you say if you were financially independent didn't need the business, wanted it because you knew you could help and you're not an arrogant SOB, what would you say? And so those are the thoughts that go through my mind to try to sort of cope with dealing with difficult and hard questions.
0: I like the steel metaphor as well because steel is quite flexible and that's where it gets its strength from. It's its yeah. flexibility. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I I really like that. It's the it's 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 taking that that literal translation, a personalizing it would be nurturing it up, so that it fits the it fits, it fits you, and it also helps. It gives the prospect permission. I almost have this image in my head of Colombo leaving by the door, with with accepting to think it over, and then stopping, and then said stopping, scratching his head, and saying, "Listen, maybe I missed something here." Right. I I really like it. I really like it. John, I really want to get on and talk a little bit about your book, because as I said in the introduction, you literally wrote the book on prospecting. (laughs) and It is just chock full of wisdom. There are 30 chapters in here. Each chapter deals with a different aspect of prospecting. And with your permission, I'd like to just address a few of them that in the time we have, um, and just to maybe get your take on what was your thinking? Why you chose that chapter? Why you felt it was important to go in here? Um, and the first one that I had was in chapter two. where You said, take responsibility for your beliefs. What, talk to me a little bit about what, what role beliefs play in selling. And yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, boy, I tell you what
1: when I think about the change and getting out of my comfort zone and any growth I would have had, it had so much to do with beliefs. Some people will defend that belief to their deaths, to to their deaths, it seems. And, and so one of the models, Paul, in that chapter is, is, is what we call the belief wheel, right? Meaning your beliefs lead to the way you judge the world. And, and my one liner there is you don't see the world the way it is. You see the world the way you are. Right? Uh, So your beliefs lead to judgments. Judgments lead to your actions. And then actions lead to results. And in, in most cases, those results um, reinforce your original belief and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So Sandler's word is head trash, right? And head trash is, are, are, are things, I, I don't know, I don't always debate whether they're true or not, not true. Mark Twain had the greatest quote, I thought, that said, it's not what you don't know that hurts you. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so, right? Right. And and so head trash is the things I knew for sure that just ain't so. So what I began to do is use that model. And instead of taking a look at my belief, where I want to defend my belief, because a belief, if you look at belief in the dictionary, it says something you know to be true based upon past experiences. So every time I talk to a plumber, they never buy. I'm making this up, right? Every time I make a sales call on a plumber, they never buy. Well, pretty soon my actions are I stop calling on plumbers. Why would I? They never buy right? And you have this self-fulfilling prophecy. Instead, what I began to take a look at and taking responsibility for my beliefs, I said, let's take a look at the results part. Am I getting the results I want? If not, the only thing that changes results is actions. I've got to do some different actions. I found those actions would collide with my belief. And then I would say what I said earlier, which is, all right, I'm going to take responsibility for the results, which means I've got to change my actions. My actions are not in concert with my beliefs, but I've made the decision I'm not going to let the way I feel control the way I act. Here's a here's a, here's an example of a story. First, week in business. David Sandler says, I've got to make 30 co-calls a day, 150 a week. I want to schedule 10 appointments, and I do 150 dials my first week. And I get, I talked to 30 people. This is 94. So 30% of the people were picking up the phone. I talked to 30 people, got 30 no's. And I called David Sandler and I said, David, I'm, I'm, I'm screwed. I don't know what to do. You told me to get 10 appointments. If I had gotten one, I, I knew I had to make 1500 calls, which is insane, but at least I can do the math. I didn't get any. David said, are you asking for referrals? I said, am I asking for referrals? Of course not i can barely keep people on the phone no one's going to give me a referral and david said are you are you telling me that because you've asked and no one ever has or you know i just (laughs) know and he said for the next three weeks you're going to talk to about a hundred people i want you to i want you to ask for a referral um if you don't get any after a hundred never do it again i'm wrong you're right i said all right well how's it supposed to sound and he and he gave me the words i still use today Uh, Once Paul told me no, I would say, Paul, I appreciate your time. Doesn't sound like right now I can help you. Um, Hey, maybe you can help me. If you were me in my business, uh, sales training, coaching, consulting, any recommendations of people in your circle, in your world, who you think might be open-minded to a two-minute conversation, not dissimilar to the one we had, first call I make, woman says, no, I'm not interested. Uh, She says, no, I'm not interested. Does anybody actually buy this? I said, Helen, not yet, right? She said, good luck to you. And I said, hey, one last thing, Helen, I know I can't help you because now I'm at Wimp Junction. I've got to have that conversation. I can't let the way I feel. Helen, doesn't sound like I can help you. Maybe you can help me. And I had that conversation. She gave me three cold, but three referrals. One became my first client. Uh, It's a company called Brickmont, and they referred me to a company called Achmet, to a company called Stevenson, to a company called ABB, to a company called Boyden Executive Group, to a company called Thermo Fisher Scientific, to a company called Industrial Scientific. There is multiple millions of dollars that started with that seed, but I didn't even believe. Now you can't convince me otherwise that it doesn't work because the data, my results, support my new belief, my more positive belief. So you've got to take responsibility for your beliefs, not by defending them, but by taking a look at, are they giving you the results you want? If not, because again, people judge themselves by their intentions and they judge everyone else by their actions. It's time for us to judge ourselves by our actions and the results, not necessarily by our intentions. And so I think that's a piece, uh, an important piece, especially as it comes to prospecting, which is often the least desirable, people think it's the least desirable part of selling.
0: Okay. Actually, I I love that. And and it dovetails nicely with a question I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned about beliefs being about our experiences. What do you think, in terms of the beliefs that we hold come from not our necessarily our experiences but from our fear. For example, I'm a, or maybe not fear but discomfort. I am uncomfortable picking mm-hmm. up on the phone and calling strangers. Therefore, in order to give me mentally a way out, I formed the belief that cold calling doesn't work. Or you said there I you said that, you know, back in 94, 30% of the people would pick up. And therefore now how I might, what belief I might form or listen to that would help me not do that behavior cuz I'm uncomfortable with it is to say well nowadays nobody picks the phone up
1: right right and by the way those numbers are are somewhere between 7 to 11% so 7 to 11% do pick up but not it's not 30 but I think you're right I think uh, one of the things uh sailor has taught both of us is that is that inside of us we've got these three ego states right part of us want to act like a parent Part of us want to act like a little scared child or a, or a petulant child, and part of us want to act like a, a real-life adult. That I've heard the uh, other Sandler trainers tell stories about. In a lot of cases, we're sending our little inner six-year-old scared child in to make that call. Right? It's really not fair. Right? Let's send an adult to make that call. So I think we do create. I think we create the belief system to keep us in our comfort zone, and it's a tremendous amount of discipline and work and accountability outside of yourself, because it's easy to justify to yourself, ways to move outside of that self, because we create that cocoon, and we become, in Sam's words, leasters. You know, I may not be the top in my field, but at least I'm able to make a living, or at least I can, and so there's this constant pressure to be an atleaster. In every, I believe in everyone. So.
0: Well, that's a perfect segue because you mentioned discipline. Chapter five: Discipline equals success. For those amongst us who struggle with discipline, how how do you how do you instill discipline? I, I spoke to a colleague of ours recently who would you know be well known for being very disciplined. Look, there's a set of tasks just let's get on with it and I asked when he said well he says Paul you got to understand I grew up a farm boy There, you know the, the the cows don't wait for us to have the right feeding to milk them you just got to get on with it um, and yeah. but but then you know he's a farm boy for, for 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 city boys town boys who who didn't have that who can kind of say well look we'll do it tomorrow it'll be fine yeah how do you, yeah. you any tips for people who really want to instill that level of discipline first
1: of all I love that farm boy farm boy story it's it's a great way to think about accountability I think I think there's a couple things I think we should all assume this is probably a lie but it's a it, I think we should all assume we're weak-willed that there's only a certain amount of willpower left in us and that we're going to find work hard to find ways to break our own commitments I think we should think that um, and and so having said that how do you feather your nest to increase the odds that you keep commitment? A uh, couple of small tips for me—they uh, don't work all the time. Um, one is, first of all, if you can define it, you can do it. Right? I got to do more prospecting. That doesn't do anything. So one is, if you can define it, you can do it. If you can define it, you can also time block it. So I'm a big fan of time blocking on the calendar because I've got something from 1984 in my Outlook task bar that says "Make cold calls today," and it just keeps rolling. But if it's actually in your calendar, now you're held in quotes accountable. to to at least look in the face and then find out that you purposefully cancel that appointment on yourself. The third behavior, I think, is to have accountability outside of yourself, someone who cares enough about you to want you to succeed, uh, who's willing to inspect what you said you expect yourself to do. So that's a behavior point. From the mindset or the attitude uh, point of view, um, I, I think, to me, I worked on the double negative and the double positive. If I'm not disciplined and I don't keep the commitments that I made to myself, it's going to work on my mindset because I'm apparently the kind of guy who can't keep commitments. And then my eyesight, my inside is going to begin to take a little bit of a beating. It's a double negative. I don't get the results and I feel bad. If I'm willing to, to, to do the things I said I would do, regardless of a circumstances and regardless of B, how I feel at this moment. I have a double positive. I have the results that can come out of doing the right thing. But more importantly, for the future, I see myself as someone who keeps the commitment they make. And if I keep the commitments I make to myself, and I'm making a sales call on you, Paul, it's only fair we keep the commitments we make to each other. And so it affects my mindset in a positive way. So there's behavioral tricks, tactics, hacks, I think, as well as a mindset thought behind that.
0: I like that. So what you're saying is, how can you expect prospects to keep their commitments with you if you're not willing to keep your own commitments with yourself? That's true. I like that. It's a good way of looking at it. So then talk to me because it was chapter seven, fake rapport. This is what jumped out at me and I wasn't quite sure what you meant by it until I read the chapter. Fake rapport versus real rapport.
1: Yeah, and, and that chapter that chapter has resonated a lot, But but fake rapport, making a phone call... Um, overly enthusiastic. Um, Hi, Paul, John, or also, uh, you've got, listen, I'm looking at your website. It's a beautiful website, right? I mean, those, to me, uh, by the way, I'm not saying that can't be real rapport, but in most cases, it's fake rapport, right? Uh, Even even the hated, how are you today, right, which we call a hate crime, H-A-Y-T, how are you today, a hate crime, uh, is fake rapport, Oh, hey, Paul, John, Rosso here at ABC Company. How are you today? It's fake rapport. Um, you know, you don't know what to say. It's a filler and it's working against you because it's being sniffed out as fake rapport as opposed to centering yourself, being authentic. So I like, as an example, uh, one of the things we talk about in the book is a pattern interrupt, right? A pattern interrupt is doing anything other than a traditional salesperson, anything. And so I like the more self-effacing pattern of erupts. I like the ones that sound like, uh, hey, Paul, John, Rosso, Paul, I'm looking for help. I don't even know if it's going to make sense for you and I to talk. Um, let me tell you the reason why I was calling, and then we'll figure out if it makes sense to talk further. Sound okay? I mean, I, to me, I like that as disarming honesty, as uh, there, there are others in this network, and this is not me, who get away with because it fits their personality saying, ring, ring, ring. This is Paul. Hey, Paul, John, Rosso. If I told you I was making a cold call, would you want to hang up? Probably. Well, I'm glad I didn't make you. I'm glad I didn't tell you I was making a cold call. That doesn't fit my style, but they're both legitimate pattern interrupts. So I think finding your style and one of the things central in Sandler is, is being comfortable with a no. I think once you can get comfortable with a no, you've changed the entire dynamics of buying and selling because for years, the buyer seller dance, the buyer vendor, parent child dynamic says I can always lord over you the hope that you'll do business with me. So when I say jump, I need you Paul to jump. Once you, once you take, once you're comfortable with no as an option, you're on, equal, you're on an equal, at best, or at worst case, an equal playing field to be able to have an adult-to-adult conversation because they can't hold anything over your head. You can't lose what you don't have. And I think the mindset behind getting comfortable with no leads directly into authentic rapport or real rapport.
0: I love that, John, because I, I always looked at that it's okay to say no, particularly in the context of a prospecting call, but, but at any point. Yeah, as a way of lowering the the prospect's defences. I never looked at it the way you just presented it, which I thought was, was a fantastic insight. Which is, it changes the dynamic because prospects, in their mind, the, the dynamic is: I'm the prospect, you're the seller. I will tell you how this thing goes, and uh, yes. you know, you, you'll jump, you'll dance, you, you'll 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 sing when yes. I say so, and when you. Position yourself as, look, it's okay, this might not be a good fit, that's, you know, fine. Uh, it just takes that, it's like taking the stool from out underneath them. It just it, takes it that is. power away.
1: And, and it's an unearned power, because I'm not looking to get power over you. Yes. I'm just looking to have a business conversation. And, and it really does uh, change that dynamic. Now, when I first was taught this, I was completely against it. My belief system, talk about beliefs, my beliefs were, if I said, hey, Paul, at the end of this, if it's not a fit, it's it's 100% okay to tell me, it's okay. Um, My belief was, after coming from IBM, where part of my training was to get you nodding, I would say, now, Paul, if you can increase your productivity of your mainframe computer, that would be a major benefit. Would you not agree? Right? I mean, I was taught to get you nodding. If I can get you nodding and saying yes seven times, um, I'm, I'm on my way to a sale and all of a sudden I'm taught that I've got to give you permission to say no. I, I, I literally believed and said to David Sandler, I'm not going to do that because if I do that, people are going to say, well, clearly you're not interested in my business. If you're not interested in my business, I'm not interested in working with you. And they're going to close my book and tell me the meeting's over. And in 24 years and multiple thousands upfront contracts, that's never happened once. My belief was dead wrong.
0: Yeah. It's interesting, actually, if I could share a story with you. Um, I, I remember as a kid, probably what got me into the training business subconsciously along the path was maybe I'm, I was, I don't know, maybe 11, 12 years of age. My, my father, who was a woodwork teacher, he went on his, uh, a Dale Carnegie course, which he used to have to drive a long distance to rough winter nights on bad roads once a week for something like 12 weeks. Yes. And, and and it was fantastic i mean he, he he got so much from that personal development and but i remember he brought home and it was is how to win friends and influence people and i was having some difficulty at that time with some friends i was being bullied a little bit a lot of it my fault i have to say and i read that book and it was transformational mm-hmm. I, you know the the, the the just the headlines how to win friends was exactly what i needed but the interesting thing was was I was having some disagreement with my older brother. He's four years older than me. He wanted me to give him something I had. I can't remember, but he went in and he was complaining to my father. I, and I overheard this conversation. and My dad was going, well, you know, get him to say yes. You know, go out and ask, you know, say something like, isn't it a beautiful day? Yes. Um, are, are you having a good time? Yes. And he says, just get him to say yes five or six times and then ask him for what you want. But I overheard this conversation. So my brother came out. It was so funny. And he starts this contrived, isn't it a beautiful day? Yada, yada, yada. And he gets to his fourth or fifth question. Then he asks, and I went, no. <laughs> and then he runs back and he says, hey, dad, that shit doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good story. Yeah. But um, yeah, so so, so we're talking a bit a fake rapport, real rapport. I guess what you're saying is, is it's that, Disarm—it's the honesty, and it's not fake honesty. It's—it's—it's it's, it's the disarming bit.
1: Yeah, and, and, and I like. So expect- to phrase, yeah, I like the phrase disarming honesty because a, it's honest. So that the word honest is in disarming honesty, so it's honest, uh, but it's also disarming. It's not brutal honesty, right? Brutal honesty would be that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard you say, Paul. All right, and, and and we're not winning friends and influencing people. So I like the disarming honesty, and oh, it, yeah. and and when comfortable in your own skin, it becomes easier
0: to yes. do that yeah tell me a little bit about then uh, what you have seen change over the past few years in sales what are you doing nowadays in terms of your prospect that you weren't doing five years ago that sure. you're going this is so much better
1: sure and and uh, so so i don't want to confuse the listeners uh social media has changed things but social media is not the answer right um so so i use social media aggressively I, I, I tweet, I have LinkedIn, I've got Facebook, I've got Instagram, I've got all those are wonderful tools. Um, and they, the research I can do now would take is 1 is 50th of what it would have took 10 years ago to find research on a particular prospect to make a connection. I'm big on warming up any call by making a personal connection. That personal connection could be a person, it could be research about the person i'm speaking to or it could be recent and relevant news about the organization they work for but that really has found a way to drop bear, to drop down barriers but ultimately selling is a selling is a human to human interaction otherwise it's online selling and i don't need you in fact what i need to do is drive down the cost of sales the way i do that paul is i don't employ you right so so but in, in our version of selling, it starts with a conversation. Everything, including all the social media and all the Google research, has to be about starting conversations. The world has gotten more cluttered. Um, more and more people are, are, are using, in my opinion, fake rapport on emails and, uh, and social media. So there's a real chance to A, stick out by being authentic and picking up the
0: phone. Okay, interesting. So that, that, that's not changed. That all I know. Yeah, no. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. You, you dedicate two chapters to dealing with stress, one of them to your stress, one of them to the prospect stress. Talk to me about that.
1: Yeah, well, I think I think think about the prospect stress for a, for a second. I mean, prospects are no different than you and I. When we talk about the prospects and the situation are reversed and we're prospects, we act like the prospect. But think about almost any situation where all decorum is thrown out and you pick up and you pick up the phone and hang up on somebody or you pick up the phone and said you got 5 seconds you got 10 seconds it's not the way normal people talk uh, so there's a lot of stress on that prospect and we've got to find a way using pattern interrupts mini upfront contracts disarming honesty all outlined in that book uh, and to be other centered to be prospect centered it's not about the features and benefits and we've been in business since 1957 no one cares um, we've got to use those to bring their defense wall down and lower their stress level up. I think on our stress level, we've sort of talked a little bit about a number of techniques. Um, one is uh, figure out what you can control, your behavior. You can't control a whole lot. Focus on the things you can control. Uh, and then get, learn to get comfortable with no. I think my I, I, I could have gotten, I've, I could have had a whole lot of stress if I would have gotten comfortable in the first year that no was okay. It took me 18 months to feel comfortable that no was okay because every time I was getting a no, I was feeling as if I was failing. Uh, even though David Sandler had said in many cases, um, you know that that no is, a, is, is one journey on the way to your next yes. And a lot of sales trainers have said that over the years, um, stress is mostly self-induced by your belief system, right? Expectations of ourselves and others is the root of all unhappiness. <laughs> And so putting that expectation of failing or succeeding based upon the outcome, not the process, put a lot of stress on me. So now I affirm in my journal, I'm tied to the process, not the outcome.
0: Love it. I love it. Uh, John, we're, we're running out of time and I want to uh, be, be, be true to our, uh, our agreement was the post-sell, chapter 15. Yeah. So people who might look at that and go, what does post-sell mean? What is the, yeah. Why is it important? Sure.
1: So post-sale, post-sale is about getting people to keep commitments. So the upfront contract is one of the techniques we teach in sailor to get people to make commitments, not to get them to make commitments, but getting them to make a commitment. Post-sale is about getting people to keep the commitment. So this is not post-sale implementation. Post-sale is a selling strategy that really is about a series of verbal rehearsal steps so that you don't back out on any verbal commitment. I'll give you an example. Funny story. I had a client that is the second largest manufacturer of caskets in the United States. And caskets it,
0: being what we would call coffins.
1: Coffins, yes, coffins. Uh, you 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 will you will spend eternity. At least your body will spend eternity decomposing in your coffin. And uh, and they was they 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 were the second biggest. Their competitor was of course the biggest. And uh, and they would go in and make these sales calls, and 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 people would say, "Listen, I'm." I'm, I'm I'm gonna switch with you, but I've got inventory that I've got to sell off over the next month or so, so why don't you follow up with me? And by the time they followed up, it was bad news. Either the person from Mr. Big said, I didn't realize you were unhappy, give me a second chance. If that didn't work, they would say, let me let me see if I can do anything on the price, would that help? If that didn't work, in rare situations, they would, they, they would offer their headquarters corporate jet to fly them down to a retreat in Georgia, uh, USA, the state of Georgia, USA, off the coast, to do a full court press to get the funeral homeowner and his wife, if you will, to stick with them. And when we learned this, we began to put in techniques called the post-sale. So when Paul, the funeral homeowner said, as soon as I run out of inventory uh, with Mr. Big, I'm gonna go to your organization. We taught him to say, Paul, I appreciate it, it means a lot. And that's the exact right decision. Let me ask you this though. We know over the next couple of weeks, you're going to get a call from the Mr. Big Salesperson asking you to reorder. What are you going to say? Because if the answer is, I'm going to go with them, you know, I'm going to give them a second chance. Maybe we want to revalue. No, I won't do that. They're probably going to offer you a price discount because they have nothing to lose because they see themselves losing their business. Now, we know it's low margin. They're not going to be able to maintain it, but are you going to be strong enough? Because I've got to go back to my office. And I've got to begin to put the marketing materials in place for you. And I want to make sure we're good. They said, no, no, we're good, John. I have seen situations, Paul, where they're going to offer you to fly. The, they're going to fly the corporate jet in to take you and your wife to the corporate retreat off the coast of Georgia. You're going to be able to stand that pressure. Or do we have an agreement? We go, Paul, you've got my word. you got an agreement. I'd give him about a week to call back. And I, and they, and I taught him to say this. Uh, Paul, have you heard from Mr. Big? He, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When they offered you the corporate jet to fly you and your wife down to the coast of Georgia, what'd you say? Number one answer, they never offered me the corporate jet. <laughs> and we taught them to say, really? Huh. Wow. Maybe oh, they, they that's so bad. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. So the so, post-sell, post-sell really is a series of verbal rehearsals to make sure that people know what they're committing to are committing to a similar version of the truth and they won't
0: back out. I like that as well because people could adapt that story to their own world. It does Absolutely. not have to be a corporate jet. It could be uh, Wimbledon tickets or, you know, Champions League, Cup Final, those big events where I-, I would imagine as well, particularly if the prospect you were trying to reel in was, let's say, a soccer fan, Champions yes. Final would be a big deal.
1: Yes, and, and, so- and, and where, it, where it really shook me is in the early days, a lot of the sales training I took said, once you get the sale, shut up. Right? And what we're teaching is, once you get the sale, shut up about your products, your features, your benefits. But don't be afraid to rehearse them on something that can cause a backout. Because if you're going to back out, I'd rather have you back out when you're in front of me, not in the privacy of your own bedroom. And then it takes me seven weeks to get a hold of you. And I've already lost this deal.
0: Fantastic. I love it. John, the book is Prospect the Sandler Way, a 30 day program for mastering stress free lead development. I know it's on Amazon. I presume it's on your own store as well on your own website. John, if people want to get in contact with you, how will they do that? What's your preferred method?
1: Sure. Easiest way to get in contact with me would be uh, uh, through uh, email, which is john.rosso, R-O-S-S-O at sandler.com, S-A-N-D-L-E-R.com. But I really appreciate uh, Paul the time. It's always a pleasure. Uh, We've spoken a lot over the years. I've learned a lot from you. I appreciate the time.
0: And likewise, John, I'll make sure those are in the details. And I would also say, people, just sign up for John's videos. He sends out monthly uh, video tactics, and they are just fantastic. You can learn so much. John, thank you so much for your time. It's really appreciated. My, My pleasure. Thank you, Paul.